Okay. Um, so last time we started talking about logistic regression, and uh, so this time we're going to continue talking about it. Um, I will use the last full piece of chalk. Okay, so um, the basic model that we now are trying to fit is this represents, this theta x represents the probability um, that the event occurs. And what I want to talk about today is basically how to interpret the parameters behind this model and, and, and how to get out estimates for this from the model. Uh, this is also essentially our, our, our mean function that we're estimating. And it's not a linear function of this anymore. Instead, it looks like this. E to the beta prime x of i over 1 plus e to the beta prime the x of i. So, so it's... Um, the probability is equal to this. There's a linear function up here, but it's raised the exponential and it appears in a couple of different places. And we can unravel this if we want, but what we'll find is that it's easier to instead to look at this in terms of what's called the log-odds ratio. So instead, what we're going to do is estimate the log of the probability of the event happening over the probability that it doesn't happen. And, and that turns out to be a nice linear function that, that, that we can estimate. I talked a little bit last time that since it is a linear function, in principle we could use the same least squares technique we used before, but in practice that doesn't work because uh, that requires that you have many observations at each of the, uh, uh, of the values of x that you, that, that you see in order to get these probabilities estimated. So um, instead, we use this maximum likelihood routine, which is a black box, so you don't need to worry about it too much. Last time, we fit this to a particular data set. That, um, the response variable was a 1 if, if a patient was um, disabled in 1992, and the uh, predictor variable was the amount of drinking of alcohol that they did in 1982. So we were interested in seeing how that level of drinking predicts, how well it predicts uh, future disabilities. And the model we got out of that was this. Um, so that this log odds ratio was equal to minus 0.77 uh, minus 0 0.01 times the drinking levels. And what we started to talk about last time was now how, how do we interpret how do we interpret this number? Okay, as it is this what I wanted it to be? Yeah, right. So um, so again to talk a little bit about interpreting, it's kind of nice to unravel this a bit and, and look and see what happens if we look at it in terms of just theta. So let's take the exponential of each side and we get then this relationship. And this kind of shows that one thing the parameter does here is it, is it th this parameter is, um, no, it's, I guess it's easier to see if, if we go back to this idea of comparing two groups. So we have group, I did it this yesterday and I want to do it in a slightly different way today. So group one drinks amount um, x naught. And group two drinks one unit. 
So group one drinks four drinks a day, group two drinks five, okay, on average. So we want to see how those two, two groups compare. Um, last time I just looked at the difference, but it's also kind of nice to look at it in terms of a ratio. So let's see how... Um, how does this thing change? So what we're seeing when we look at it like this is how many times increase does this compare to that? You know, so, so, so what percentage changes there or, or how many factors does it increase? Something like that. So if we look at it like that, what we've got here in the top, we've got e to the minus 0.77 times e to the minus 0.01 times x naught plus 1. And in the bottom, we've got e to the minus 0.77 e to the minus 0.01 times just x naught. So now if you do the algebra, what comes out of this is just e to the minus 0.01. And so that tells us that um, this number is the factor. So this is a, a um, so to go from group one to group two, you just um, multiply the odds ratio. by e to the minus 0.01, which in this case is about 0.99. So this is the, the multiplicative increase. So in this case, it turns out to be a number less than 0.99, but let's just pretend for a minute it was the number 10. What this would be telling us is that extra drink of, uh, per day increases your, your odds by a factor of 10 of suffering a disability. Okay. This is good news. This means that extra drink a day decreases your odds of getting uh, a, a disability. Okay, so, so numbers bigger than one mean your odds are going up, numbers less than one mean your odds are going down. And we can see through this data set just, just kind of how that translates. Let's just put in some numbers. Um, so as it turns out that the mean drinking level in this particular sample was about four drinks a day. So um, if x is equal to 4.0, Let's just see what these numbers turn out to be. So then so these if you're drinking four glasses a day and you're in this sample. Uh, and assuming the sample is representative of this population, so this remembers a mostly older population. If you're drinking four glasses a day uh, on average, then your odds ratio, I have this upside down, don't I? Is about 0.44. Okay. So the probability that you have a disability over is, is, is less than the probability that you, that you won't. So you're less likely to be disabled than you are disabled. So that, that's mostly good news. Remember now, when this ratio is equal to one, then we've got even, odd, even probabilities. As it gets bigger than one, then, then this numerator becomes more and more likely. 
Um, so so uh, in, in this case, since the, the event is a bad one, you, you, you would hope for a, a fraction that's less than one. Now, what this is telling us is that if you drink five drinks per day, what it's saying is your odds ratio get mul gets multiplied by this amount, by E times 0 0.01. So that means you would have 0.449 times E to the minus 0 0.01, or about 4404. Okay. So that's just a a way of saying that what happens then is that your your odds are even better now. I mean, the odds ratio has gone down, and so your odds of, of suffering this disability are even less than they were before. Okay. Of course, it, it matters somewhat about what, yeah? How would you interpret the 0.4449 again? Well, so, so this is um, the probability that you're disabled in 10 years' time over the probability that you're not. You'll hear these sorts of things in the news all the time. You know, if you smoke this cigarette, your odds of getting cancer go up 10 times. You know, you're, you're, and what they're usually talking about your odds ratio. The odds of getting cancer versus the odds of probability of cancer over the probability of not getting cancer. It goes up 10 times. Of course, what you really want to know is, well, what is it to start out with? Because if it's only one in a billion, then you can afford that extra 10 <laughs> times, right? You know, so so that's, that's an important baseline thing to kind of pay attention to. And we can get that then from just continuing to unfold this. So um, let's look at that. So what we want to do is we want to find this thing. So that's e to the beta x over 1 plus e to the beta x. So in this case, this would be e to the minus 0.77 minus 0.01 times 4 over 1 plus e to the minus 0.7 minus 0.01 times 4 and this turns out to be 0.307894 okay so this is probability estimated probability of um, suffering a disability um, if you drink four glasses a day. Okay. So, so, so that's rather high, I, I, I think. And um, and um, Partly that's explained by the fact that this is an older group, and so some of these people um, in 10 years' time will be in their 80s. Um, you know, so, so that, that explains some of why. You know, so certainly this same probability wouldn't be true of college-age people. Um, it's also explained by the fact that the disability definition is not as severe as you might be thinking of in your mind. You know, someone, someone who um, sprains an ankle would be considered disabled, for example, or could be. Um, you know, so, so, so it's fairly uh, lenient as far as its definition goes, but that's kind of its, its estimation as, as to what that probability actually is at any given time. Okay? Um,
Okay, so let me just show you how to do get these, these numbers in R because there's no need to kind of go through this, this mathematics every time, but you kind of, I'll show you once how to do it in R and then talk about how to measure the goodness of fit with these models. Um, and then we'll be back on the, the chalkboard for that. Okay, so attach. So just to remind you, to, to, fit the, to fit the model itself, you use this GLM command. Um, and I'm not going to change the font this time. I've learned my lesson. So uh, you'll just have to read it. Uh, if you can't see it from there, you'll just have to see it on the notes. Um, and what we've got is, is, is the same sort of format as before. So we've got our response variable, which is this one zero variable that's determining if someone is disabled in 1992 as a function of their drinking. The difference is we have to tell it um, wh what sort of distribution to use. I can't remember how to... I, I, can't, I think I need to put quotes around that. Let me check. Uh, no, I need to... Just like this. So it's a little odd syntax. So, so in any case, that's the, the, the somewhat odd syntax for this, this sort of thing. Um, we're going to get back to this in a minute, but I might as well just show you to remind you. So again, these are the estimates of these parameters. So you know, the, this, this minus 0.01, you notice, isn't instantly interpretable. You have to take e to that to understand what the factor is that we're being multiplied. So you, know, you want to do e to the minus 0.01223, and that tells us you know, how the odds ratio changes with additional drinking. Uh, what we're going to be talking about in a little bit is what these deviances mean down here. Uh, and, and, and because these are going to kind of take the place of our R squared, they're going to be measuring how, how well the model fits in some sense. It actually isn't measuring the goodness of fit so much as uh, helping you determine, well it does, so yeah. <laughs> we'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, so let's talk about how to get actual values out of it. So if I want to understand um, how much you're drinking when you're drinking four glasses a day, it's the, the predict command and so I tell it that I want to predict based upon this model that we just fit. And then you have to create a data frame to give it value. So I'm going to tell it I want to predict, um, I want predicted probabilities for these values. And you have to put it in a data frame and you have to give it the same name as your predictor variable had. And, um, you know, let's just say we want it for four. Okay. So notice that this can't possibly be a probability. <laughs> This is uh, minus 0 0.81669990. Okay. What it just gave me was the log odds. So if I were to take um, the exponent of this, I hope this works out. I hope I'm taking the right exponent. Yeah. yeah, so if I take the exponent, now I've got the odds ratio. Okay. What I really wanted was the probability of, of, of having a disability if I'm drinking at four. And to do that, I do the same command, but I add um, this one feature, uh, what is it, type equals response. Okay. And now it's telling me that that probability, is that what I got before? Well, pretty close. It's 0 0.30646. Okay. So that's, that's how you get these probabilities out. Yeah. Can you do more than one with QFI? One yeah. Number? So you can put in any, any long list you want here. So comments? Yeah, so just with the, with the C like this, let's do it. So I get it for both of them that way. <coughs> if you leave this out, 
you get um, predictions for your initial data. So if you want to find predictions for the whole data set, then you just leave this data frame command out and, and, and you'll get, um, you know, for all of the original QFIs, we'll get predictions for the new ones. And, and that's a nice way of understanding what your initial data set looked like. So, back to understanding how well this model actually works. In least squares model, the basic way that we used to evaluate how well a model fit was to look at the residual sums of squares. Um, what we want to answer now is the question um, to evaluate how well the model fits or any model fits, do any of the predictors um, do a better job than um, no predictor at all? So in a sense, what we want to do is we want to compare um, our alternative hypothesis, or so our, our, well, so the model looks like e to the beta naught plus beta 1 x1 plus all the way up to beta p xp over 1 plus this thing. So we want to ask, is this better? than just this model. So we want to compare those two. This is the null. The alternative model. Or alternative hypothesis. So of course that, that, that explanation depends on what you mean by better. And when we did in least squares, better meant the residual sum of squares. You know, how did the observations compare uh, to, to the observed values? What we're doing now, because we're not doing least squares anymore, um, it's based on, on, on the likelihood function, which is this mathematical thing we're not going to get into. But what we look at is something instead called the deviance. And it's going to look a little complicated, but we'll talk our way through it. Uh, it's got some unusual things in it. So, I can never remember to, I should look at it. So complicated function, let's just explain the terms. Yi is the number of people who suffer disability. So it's the number of people who had the event at that value of x of i. 
So if X of I is equal to four, this is the number of people who were disabled uh, who drank four glasses a day. M sub I is the total number of people drinking four glasses a day. Okay. What we want is called deviance because it measures how far away the model is from the observations. So Y hat is the predicted number of, of people who are drinking, you know, who are disabled at this drinking level. If the predicted number and the actual number are the same, this is a ratio is a one, log of one is zero, so that becomes zero. Same sort of thing happens over here. So, so, do I? Yeah. So, if, if your predictions are right on, this will be zero, it'll be, be small. As this gets further apart, you know, as, as the predictions and the reality get further apart, this gets to be a bigger number. Okay. There's a two out front there. It seems completely mysterious why there a two should appear. And <laughs> again, this comes out of the derivation of this function. And, and, and again, and that comes from the, lo the, the log likelihood function of, of, uh, um, that, that we're maximizing to get the parameter. So I mean, there is a logic behind the exact structure of this beyond what I'm telling you. But I mean, this is the intuition about why it, why it should be measuring in some sense whether the model is good or not. And if this is a small number, then that's telling us that the model, model must be a good number. And if it gets further from zero, then it's, it's, a, it's a less good model. And so essentially what we use is for, for all these things is the deviance. Um, under certain conditions, this statistic g squared follows the chi-squared distribution. Um, so one condition is if at every observation, at every value for which you've made an observation, you have um, multiple observations. So at every level of drinking that we observed, if there was more than one person drinking that, that amount, then g squared follows a chi squared distribution with n minus p plus 1 um, degrees of freedom. Okay, so you remember that the chi-squared distribution looks a little like that. So often that's not the case. It's not the case with this data because we had several values for which there was only one person drinking, you know, fortunately, only one person was drinking that 140 glasses of, of per week. You know, so, so um, that's not true in our data set. And then what's often used is a, a, an approximation, um, which is just this. Uh, which again is approximately chi-squared same degrees of freedom. I don't know what R does. I mean, R may... I, I don't know precisely what R is calculating. I wasn't able to find out in time. Yeah? What does this X squared mean? X squared is just the statistic. It's called X squared. It's a chi-squared statistic. Kind of. Yeah? So what do you mean by XI? Is that like a continuous thing or the three? By X... Oh, oh. I mean the I. Yes. So, so, so X is continuous, like you can have a continuous drinks per day, but X sub I is the one you actually observed for person number I. So I was drinking 4.2, so X sub I is 
two for me. You know, so. Right. So, so we have we have x one, x two. You know, these are all of our observations on these n people, and some of them are the same, same number. And and if if some of them are are, are if these are duplicated, then m sub i is is bigger than one. Okay. So so both of these things are approximately measuring the goodness of fit, how close the predictions come from the observations. And what we can do then is we can compare them to, um, um, to this chi-square distribution to see if adding terms in the model makes a big change. I'm just going to refer to g-square, the deviance, whether or not it's really doing the deviance or it's calculating something like this. I suspect it's actually calculating yet another quantity that's neither of these two, but is some useful approximation as well. But basically what you do then is you look at the g squared of the null model minus the g squared of the alternative model. What you're hoping is that this is a bad fit, so this is a big number, and this fit is good, so it's going to be uh, a, a better number, a smaller number. So this should be positive, and you're hoping um, the difference is large. So you're hoping that, you know, if you added a term to the, to, to the model, due to random chance, this thing might go down a little bit, but you're hoping it went down so much that it's more than can be explained just by chance, and therefore that these extra terms you put in are, are useful predictors for the model. So the way we answer that is it turns out that this, this difference here so follows a chi-square distribution where the degrees of freedom are just the difference in the degrees of freedom of the two models. So R is giving us these two things. I'm sorry, I'll put this back up so you can keep, keep writing things down, but I just want to point this out. So when you did a summary of it, R gives you these deviance terms here. And I, I'm not sure exactly what it's computing, but so with no parameters in the model, with just the inner, or just, it's not an intercept anymore, but with just a constant beta naught, the deviance is 2153.4. There are so many observations, you subtract the one parameter, you get this. With that one extra slope term that represents drinking, we have a deviance of 2150.1. So the change in degrees of freedom is 1 because all we did was we just put in one parameter. So this difference is about 3.3. So our real question is what's the probability that a chi-squared random variable would, would be 3.3 or bigger um, if it has one degree of freedom? Okay, and so you can get that by looking at this. Um, let's see, it's 1 minus p chi squared 3.3 with um, 1 degree of freedom. So 
you get values of that statistic this large or larger about 7% of the time if there really is no effect of the additional predictor. So w at a 5% level, we would reject this. And what that would mean was that at this level, um, alcohol has such a weak association with disabilities that we could do just as good a job without any terms in the model as we could by including alcohol. What's a little encouraging is it's a small p, it's a big, bigger than 5%, but it's not that much bigger. So, I mean, there is some, some hope for alcohol in the future. So, so all the things you learned about regression before, um, <laughs> that sounds bad, but all the things we learned about how predictors interrelate and when there are correlations and, you know, they affect the p-value are still true here. So, I mean, what we're kind of hoping is, as researchers in alcohol, is that um, if we put in the right variables to control for whatever extra variability there is, you know, age, um, initial health level, all those sorts of things, that'll help us see a cleaner picture and maybe we will find that there's some significance here if we've controlled for the proper terms of the model. So we can continue to explore that a little bit. But that, that, that's essentially how we're going to measure how, you know, wh whether mo the model is useful or not. Okay. And any questions? Yes? Is that related to the... Um Yeah. Um, no, you know, I'm not so sure you can get from one. In, in linear regression, that'd be the same. Um, I don't think you can get there that easily with this, though. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I not necessarily. Uh, I'll have to think about that. Um, is it possible that you would find a significant predictor but still find that the model was not significant? Um, I suspect that it is possible because these deviances are approximations. Uh, I, th I think, you know, if, all, if, if, if you had large enough sample sizes and all that sort of stuff that the approximation was really good, then they would be in close agreement. Um, is there any relation between the p-value you just found and the p-values from the, when you, like, call up the, the pit? That's what she was asking, I think. So, so these are the p-values when you call it the fit. So you get a point. And, and it doesn't give you an overall p-value. So, so when, when you do the linear model, it has an f-test-to-fit uh, F -test statistic, and it gives you a p-value for the overall model. And this doesn't do that. I mean, it's, it's got this little thing we calculate instead. And then it's also got this AIC, which, again, is another way of kind of comparing two different models. Okay, any other questions? All right, so the other thing we want to talk about then is what we're going to be moving more and more towards is, is, is kind of the prediction game. What we want to do is decide whether or not, you know, we can predict that someone will suffer a disability. So, oh, I, sh I meant to tell you this, but show you this, but, um, you know, we saw if you're drinking four glasses a day, your probability of, of being disabled in the 10 years in the future is about... Uh, 0.3, so about 30%. If you're drinking zero glasses, you know, it goes up as you drink less. If you were drinking zero glasses a day, it's about 35%, something like that, or 34%. So it's never very high, but essentially what we want to do is make classifications. So let me write this down. So we want to assign each patient to one of two categories. So 
um, high risk and low risk. Yeah? Oh. So you want to be able to say to someone, you know, your drinking level puts you at high risk for this. And you want that to mean something. I mean, so obviously you could say it puts you at higher risk, um, but what we'd like to be able to say then is um, a rule. We want a rule. want to be able to discriminate between these two classes of people. Based upon drinking, we'd like to be able to say, um, you know, if you're above this amount, you're at high risk. If you're below that amount, you're at low risk. And in a, in a nutshell, this is called the discrimination problem. You know, how cleanly can we separate, based just upon drinking, how clearly can we divide the population into two groups like this? You probably guessed from what we've seen so far, it, it, it's not so easy. Um, for this particular data set because the risk is never very high. So what we could do, if the risk went all the way up to 100%, clearly if your risk, you know, if the probability of being a disabled, you know, if I could plug in drinking levels was 14 and your risk of a disability is 100%, that person would clearly go into the high risk group. Okay. So 90%, that's probably a good thing to put in the high risk group too because that means given enough people that 90% of them will suffer this disability. And you can play that game and go on and on and how low do we go before we no longer decide to put them in the high risk group. So essentially what we're going to do is choose the cutoff risk level or cutoff probability level. Where is that group? So choose um, a cutoff. So for example, I'm choosing a really, what turns out to be a really low cutoff here. And it's the probability of a disability is bigger than 0.3, then we classify as high risk. I pulled that point three just off the top of my head. I mean, the idea here is that you, you would experiment with ver several different values and see if any of them was, was, was good at predicting whether someone was at high risk or not. So point three I chose, you know, it, it would make more sense to choose something around point nine or point eight or something that actually has a high pr probability of it being a risk. But we didn't have any categories like that. Right, so uh, that's because alcohol isn't doing that fine a job of distinguishing just what makes someone at a high risk or not. Um, so if I chose 0.9, then I would classify no one as, you know, as a cutoff. None, no one in our data set would be classified as, as, as a high risk for disability. So I'm choosing something as 0.3 just to kind of illustrate what's going on here. But how can we know whether this is good, doing a good job or not? One way that's kind of simple, we're going to talk in the next day or so too about different ways of assessing whether or not a classifier like this is good or bad. And one way that's kind of simple is a, called the confusion matrix. So this, this approach falls under different names in different fields. I think this term is fairly new, like in the last 10 years or so it started to be used. 
But a confusion matrix looks like this. It has the actual on this side, and it has the predicted is the rows, I mean the columns. And um, let's just keep the alcohol content. So, in this box we put everyone who really has no disability and we predicted as having no disability. And here's all the people who have no disability but we predicted a disability. So these are, 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 you could also, we've been talking about these in terms of low risk and high risk. Okay. And then the same sort of thing for the last row, which is those who actually have a disability. Either we predicted that they wouldn't or we predicted that they would. Okay. What we hope for, I mean not in, term, in the medical sense, but in terms of our model, what we want is we want this big, this box, and this box, we want them to be big numbers. Because if our classification is working well, we're going to be correctly predicting people into the right category. So we're classifying them as no risk, uh, at low risk, hopefully that means they had no disability. We're classifying them as high risk, hopefully in the sense of the model, that means that they, they do suffer a disability in the future. And that means that we want these small. So what the confusion matrix does is kind of at a glance you can look and see if these numbers are bigger than those numbers and, and how much bigger and get some sense of the type of errors that you're making. So this looks a lot like hypothesis testing, which it kind of is. Um, so it's kind of saying something along the lines of, you know, you can figure out what the type 1 and type 2 error equivalents are. You know, what's, how often are you, make, are you saying that someone's not saying low risk when they're actually getting disabled, and how often are you saying that they're they're high risk when they're not getting disabled? Figure out what those errors are, and then you can fine tune. You can change that by by changing this value of C as you move it up or down. You can see how the confusion matrix changes and, and, and help find out where that cutoff point should be. Okay, so as I said, we didn't do a very good job. Next time we'll we'll try and do a slightly better job. But here's what the confusion matrix turns out to be for these data. Um, so. so for a, a, a cutoff level of 0.3, we get no disability, disability, six, none, So, I mean, the good thing is, uh, 
Of those that we predicted wouldn't have a disability, in fact, most of them didn't. So that was okay. But of those we predicted would have a disability, the vast majority of them did not. Okay? That's good news for them. Bad news for us. Okay? So, I mean, you can see, when, when only 30% of your sample is disabled, you really could do a better job just by saying that, oh, I think no one is going to be disabled. And, you know, 30% of the time, you know, you only be wrong 30% of the time. Here we're wrong much more than 30% of the time. Uh, so, so this is the case where our model did, or our model in conjunction with this cutoff did worse than just doing nothing at all. Just, you know, uh, not fitting any model at all. Okay, so there are various summaries let's call them summary statistics that come from this table that you'll hear a lot about in various literatures and discussions. That we're going to talk about on mostly on Friday. So sensitivity and specificity are both measurements of how well you correctly classify and how, how often you misclassify. Um, and they're numbers that we'll talk about next time. I always forget which is which, so that's why I'm not saying anything now, because um, the names are terribly informative to me, but, but in any case. Um, ROC curve, C stands for characteristic. I'll have to remember to remind myself what this stands for. ROC curve measures how well the sensitivity and specificity trade-off as you, so there's a trade-off between these two. If one is good, the other is bad. They're much like type one and two errors. So um, what we want to do is see how those two things trade off as you change for different values of the cutoff. And the ROC curve gives you a map that kind of tells you, helps you see where that cutoff should be. Um, it's also a useful way for comparing completely different models because if the, if the ROC, you can tell things from the shape of the ROC curve about what sort of models are useful and which models are not so useful. Um, this is really hard to get out of R, and I put a, 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 an example, it's not really hard, but it's a several, there's no function that does it for you, you're welcome to write one, but in the meanwhile it takes like five or six lines of typing. Um, these things will be able to compute more directly, but you'll have to load an additional library into, into R uh, to be able to use it, so we'll, we'll talk about how to do that next time. Uh, yes? You know, that's a great question, and I have no idea. It, and it's called, um, I've seen it called the sensitivity matrix. Um, it comes out of the, the, the machine learning literature. So this comes from like some of the artificial intelligence sort of things where they're doing automated learning procedures and things like that. And I, 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 my guess is that if you have high diagonals right here, that's a sign that there's no confusion. And so by measuring the dispersion off the diagonal, you get a measure of what the poly confusion, meaning it's unable, the machine is unable to distinguish between those two states.